I, for one, believe that our skill set as landscape architects can be used for good, can be used towards justice and reconciliation and restorative justice. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Sarah Zodi, landscape architect and founding principal of Studio Zodi, a landscape, urban design, and public art practice based in New York City. Sarah joins us today to discuss her research following Frederick Law Olmsted and his work on the Cotton Kingdom. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me. You've been busy. In addition to your uh, founding of your practice a couple of years back, you've also been appointed to the professor and practice faculty in landscape architecture at the Harvard GSD. Over the past several years, I've, I've just been trying to keep track of the recognition honors and awards uh, following your graduate degrees. Um, you were named artist in residence at the Rushberg Foundation 2016, um, National Trust for Historic Preservation's 40 Under 40 2018. And then in the context of the pandemic, you've been busy, United States Artists Fellow 2020, Emerging Voice of the Architectural League of New York 2021, and Architectural Digest AD 100 this year. So congratulations. Are you getting any rest at all? No, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> no, in, in reality, I feel very energized. So it's quite the opposite, as you might think. Sprinting, but I, it, there's a lot of wind behind my back. I feel just a lot of great collaborators, a lot of great colleagues, present company included. So it feels like I'm a part of something bigger always. And that's what, you know, is really keeping me going. Among those honors and awards would be, um, in 2014, you were named the National Olmsted Scholar by the Landscape Architecture Foundation, uh, and with the research fellowship from LAF and uh, the support of other you know, institutions, I know that you've been pursuing a line of research that might be interesting for our uh, audience in the context of the future of the American city. You've been following the travels of one young, then Frederick Law Olmsted in the 1850s, chronicling the conditions for the ownership of human beings in the cotton economy. These are the, the essays that he wrote for the New York press were published in serial form and that he then compiled in the 1861 book publication, Cotton Kingdom. Tell us about how you got interested in that body of research and where is it going uh, in your work today? Sure. So I studied urban sociology, then I studied city planning and urban design, and, and then I studied landscape architecture. I, I took the scenic route. And so through nine years of studying cities and throughout those different lenses, understanding Olmsted and his imprint on cities in America, there was there a mention of Olmsted's travels to, to the South. There was a mention in passing in my final year of the nine years. And I, I followed up via email. This is in a professional practice class. I followed up via email to the guest presenters who mentioned it and uh, asking for more references um, for literature that might make clear the relationship between these travels and his practice of landscape architecture. And, you know, those scholars responded by saying, you know, there, there isn't much, you know, there's the original text there's some historians have contextualized the contribution uh, of his documentation of, you know, he's considered the most cited witness of 19th century slavery. But in terms of making explicit the relationship between that and landscape architecture, there wasn't much that's been written. And if someone had just pointed the book out to me, I would have read the book and kept it going. He kept my life moving, but I just kept asking myself the question, especially 
being born and raised in the South and, um, you know, very few references being made throughout my education to the South other than what not to do. I was just perpetually curious about what Olmsted had to say. And so uh, I, yeah, I started really in earnest 2019, um, which is when I made my travels retracing his steps through the South and, and really spending time with his personal letters and trying to triangulate all of these things. It's astonishing. I mean, in your own experience, um, you know, my own experience, you know, raised in the South, educated in the Northeast, this connection between, on the one hand, Olmsted's role as a journalist, you know, chronicling these conditions, as you say, the most, you know, cited author with a certain respect of chronicling these conditions, and also the founder of landscape architecture nominally, among many other things we could say in the course of his career. And yet these literatures didn't really intersect or hardly ever, it seemed. And so you took it upon yourself to retrace Olmsted's steps more or less literally. Um, And I understand that you were not the first author to do so. No, I was not. Tony Horowitz, who's a historian, um, made the same travels. Admittedly, I started reading his book over the first five pages, and I decided I couldn't continue to read it because I found myself, you know, wanting to respond and be in dialogue with, with his work. But I did get the sense from the first five pages that he's a historian and somewhat of a comedian, and uh, but the the work of landscape architecture and the reflection of, you know, of those travels onto his practice, I mean, is 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 something that I think landscape architecture, you know, as a discipline, has something to say, something to contribute here about how that how his journeys get historicized. I mean, if we look at the timeline, he comes back from his second trip south in 1854 and returns with very clear convictions about the potential role of public parks in the United States and how they might mitigate some of the more corrosive influences of slavery on civic society. And so that's a very clear conclusion that he reaches. He throws no punches in his last uh, article for the New York Daily Times. And he's really searching for a way to apply this conviction in the North, which he believes the North um, must demonstrate the virtues of a free society. And so, um, you know, when the Central Park superintendent position opens up and when he submits, you know, works on his design um, competition entry with Vox, it's really a chance, you know, for him to prove his belief through landscape design and landscape theory. He really spends those three months of the putting together an entry for America's first landscape design competition with the ambition of proving why a democratic and free society is is a better way to go than the bondage uh, uh, that he saw himself. Another thing that I've um, seen you refer to in your in your public comments and in various formats is this notion that we have a history of, of landscape architecture, the invention, so-called of it in the US the origin myth in the middle of the 19th century uh, as disconnected from whatever previous kind of vocation or, or career Olmsted had. I mean, Olmsted famously having, you know, tried his hand as a farmer with, with the farm on Staten Island, uh, traveled widely, uh, moves into journalism. Um, and as you say, doesn't really pull his punches in describing I mean, the, the publication ultimately in 1861 of the, the collected uh, works in, under the title Cotton Kingdom was explicitly a reference to audiences in, on the East Coast in Europe to support the American or Northern War effort. In that context, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about the, the role of Olmsted, both as superintendent and then in winning the design competition for Central Park in the erasure of Seneca Village, a story that is now, I think, 
quite well understood uh, in our field, but had also been really quite uh, rendered invisible for, for many, many years. I wonder if you could say something about how you view the continuity between Olmsted's interest in the kind of journalistic practice and the role of the public park and the continuities there, and also, you know, what you might think of, you know, the, the erasure of the site of Central Park. You know, in his last article for the New York Daily Times, uh, part of what he professes there is that the, the real proof of a free and democratic society, the real, the real evidence in the superiority of, of a civic and democratic society is the success of the Negro, that the North must demonstrate the ability for the Negro to prosper. Um, and create a society where those conditions can be realized. And so, you know, he goes a bit on a tangent about some of the gatherings of intellectual Negroes, as he puts it. Um, And, you know, he's convinced that the the real issue is that they're enslaved. Um, And so knowing that that was a big part of his kind of departure from the South and entry into landscape architecture, that that was at the forefront of his mind is a takeaway for me. He also did not like the location of Central Park. As you know, it was originally going to be um, Jones Park on the east side on the river. And he says that there couldn't have been a worse sighting of the park on the island. Um, He makes reference to the marshy conditions, the rocky conditions that, um, you know, that there there have to be a lot of manipulation of the land in order to make this uh, a park in, in his vision. And, and he complains too that the location ultimately was a function of politics. Uh, and he was extremely frustrated by, by the politics that governed the site selection. He doesn't make it explicit, um, at least in what I've found, that you know, the connection between his frustration and the removal of this, the most stable African-American community in New York at the time. But for me, the, you know, knowing that his, he's determined to demonstrate the ability for the Negro to prosper. And he's made clear his frustration with the political underpinnings of the site selection. And to me, I mean, I can assume uh, where he stands on it. And, you know, the decision for the selection predates him by a decade. So he was not involved in the selection uh, or removal of Seneca Village. And so the history of Seneca Village has, you know, there's a lot to, unpack there in terms of the legacy of landscape architecture and public parks and land um, in the United States, less so to do, I think, specifically with Olmsted's legacy. For our listeners who haven't followed this, of course, you know, Seneca Village is, I think, now quite well represented in the literature in our field and in adjacent fields. You know, this is the 19th century settlement founded in the 1820s, um, uh, African-American landowners, um, hundreds of people forcibly relocated by virtue of the eminent domain that, you know, gathered the land to make the Central Park. And and, and part of what I hear you suggesting, Sarah, correct me if, if I'm wrong, is in fact, a larger structural set of issues around big urban projects, could I say, big reform parks, let's say, but equally, you know, big infrastructure projects in the 20th century and a, and a tradition in which both political choices made, real estate choices made, but also a clearly erasure of populations, erasure of lived histories. That's something I think that we've all been come to terms with in the past decades in our field. And do, do you think of landscape architecture as having any particular reconciling to do on that? I mean, I, we've inherited, you know, the the first image I saw in architecture school was really the, the sins of our grandfathers and, you know, the kind of urban renewal and the failure of the modern city. 
we're beginning, I believe, to sort of understand the role of landscape architecture in those practices. But w- where do you think we are as a, as a profession or a discipline on that question? I think in a lot of ways, how we're starting to respond to it as a profession is really rooted in guilt, which I think is not very productive, you know, for people who historically have been on the receiving end of those decisions. I think guilt is something that, you know, the recognition and just the, the, the confrontation of that history was, has been happening, uh, you know, for years and for decades. And so there's sort of a disconnect in time for the profession to now all of a sudden feel like, well, we should grapple with this. Well, a lot of people have been grappling with it for a long time. And the ways in which I see landscape architecture um, grappling with it is really, you know, I find I find the spirit of this grappling being, it, it feels paternalistic in a sense. It feels like we don't, we've, we're, we're quick to kind of abandon our agency as, as professionals because we think it is our agency as professionals that is at the core of the problem. And it's really what we did with that power, how we wielded that power, how we wielded this profession, um, not that we did so in the first place. And so I, I for one, believe that, that our skill set as landscape architects can be used for good, can be used towards justice and reconciliation and restorative justice. And that's really kind of how I approach the profession. Um, and less so just, you know, being kind of handicapped by guilt. I think there's a lot of work that we need to do to get past that as a profession. So you mentioned, you know, a, a kind of reckoning and, and the limits or the, um, you know, the kind of uh, the difficulty of simply approaching things through grief or loss or, or regret. And yet you also reinforce your sense of commitment to, you know, landscape architecture as a medium of design, as a practice of design in which you can engage in the world. Um, I know from, um, you know, talking with you and others about this, it's not just the discipline of landscape architecture or the profession, but in fact, it's a broader society that are kind of trying to reconcile these, these questions. I know that in your practice, Studio Zoda, you've had a, a number of opportunities recently to engage with both, both educational institutions, but also cultural institutions, museums, and other, other institutions on these questions. What can you share with us from your recent experience in, in, in how landscape architecture is being called upon again these days? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the themes and, and tensions in the work that we're doing is the ability for landscape architecture to cause an appreciation in, in land value and as such kind of spur more erasure, more dislocation from land and from place. And so something that, that we've been exploring in our, in our work uh, and hope to continue to expand is a real clear collaboration between design and policy uh, in ways to the value that our work as landscape architects generates uh, can be captured and you know shaped to address um, some of the historical inequities in communities where we're working. So you know working with community land trusts as clients and neighborhood organizations who are set up to or willing to create the kind of policy mechanisms, that landscape architecture can work within is one really exciting dimension of our work. It, you know, it's easy to get, to lose hope, I think, when, <laughs> in a lot of ways, but th- there is a sort of model that I'm, I'm really interested in pushing our work towards, and that is a real deliberate integration of design and policy. You know, it's, it's kind of a, 
in hindsight, as I'm working through this research with Olmsted, I keep finding elements of it that keep me going and energize me and actually challenge me in my work. Um, you know, Olmsted's role as an advocate, um, his role as, um, you know, his view of a sort of expanded practice of landscape architecture, ways in which we can be engaging in economics, in government, in, you know, kind of a sociological and ecological lens and kind of toggling back and forth between those as we make decisions about planting and soil and topography. Um, and so f- for me, that's one of the, the bigger takeaways from, uh, from Cotton Kingdom that I'm playing in our work is, um, you know, it's not just a historical document or an itinerary, it's a methodological proposition. And, and I find it, you know, propelling me forward in the kinds, you know, thinking beyond the conventional limits of what landscape architects do. You mentioned your own educational background and intellectual formation in sociology, urban design, planning, landscape, architecture. So it, it shouldn't be coincidental in that regard that you're interested in the connection between policy, you know, kind of urban conditions, let's say. Um, I'm interested in the way in which you describe both inequity and the relationship between landscape practice and forms of inequity. And you, you avoided, I think, consciously the the G word. I mean, you're referring to gentrification. I can take it, but also, uh, you know, we live in a culture even, you know, well before gentrification, in which you know, uh, economic inequity is inscribed along racial lines, of course. And we've had, you know, a history of the built environment in the American city, where the American city has been built along those racist lines. Uh, and at the same moment, I think you're you're suggesting that landscape architecture has been both complicit in that, but also contributing to inequities in certain ways. So you mentioned land trusts and community development organizations. Are there specific projects that you have in the studio just now that point to these uh, interests? Yeah, so we are working, there's a couple of projects. Um, One is with Africatown in Seattle. We actually had a community land trust as our client in the early visioning work. I'll make note here that I was consciously avoiding using the G word, and that is because I think it conflates a lot of different dynamics of change into a word that's triggering um, and it obscures rapid change in property values and racial demographics and style, architectural styles or changes in density. Um, and I think those are all very different dimensions of change that gentrification just kind of collapses. And I think it's useful to think of those as distinct uh, processes. So the Africatown Community Land Trust, you know, for instance, I mean, they are thinking about the, uh, racial demographics, and that's their kind of primary index of change because uh, this was a historically redlined community and they've been in the central district for 150 years, the only historically black neighborhood in Seattle. In the 1970s, it was 77% black, the neighborhood, and today it's 12%. Um, And so in many ways you could say that uh, gentrification is complete. Uh, and so it begs the question, you know, what is the, is there a chapter after gentrification? And the generation of people that really witnessed the dismantling of the neighborhood there in their mid forties, late forties or so now kind of self-taught themselves about urban planning and real estate development and developed a community land trust. They actually first started to call themselves Africa town casually on the street, um, noting that the adjacent Chinatown neighborhood wasn't seeing the same kind of cultural displacement as they were in the central district. So they started to call themselves Africatown and and formed this community land trust and started purchasing property in the neighborhood and over time have 
inspired uh, people to become investors in and have developed construction ground up to in, build a new Africa town. So they've been engaging uh, displaced people and actually repatriating them back to the central district and have successfully brought thousands of people um, into the central district of, of African descent and of connected to the legacy and the history of the central district. And so we've been working with them on doing visioning work and design work um, through the lens that they brought to the project, which is that the actual design of this Africa town could speak to this ambition and that, you know, there's something they challenged us aesthetically on, you know, the, the ways in which space, not just in terms of ornamentation, but literally how you shape the space, what uses you support, um, who feels welcome there, you know, that those, that those elements of design are important to the project. Uh, so, I mean, it's a pretty rare opportunity to have a community organization so so clear-minded about what the role of design can be in, in making somebody's presence felt and known in, in real space. You refer um, in that project to the idea that in Seattle, 23rd and Union had been long considered both the heart of Black Seattle, but also the, quote, most controversial block in the city. So tell us what that means in the context of Seattle and Africatown. Yeah, the press love to call it ground zero of gentrification. What happened was there's many chapters of the history of 23rd and Union. It's considered the corner where more Black men have been um, incarcerated than any other corner in the city. And once marijuana was legalized, um, a white-owned dispensary opened up at the corner while those, while those men still sit behind bars. But also culturally, it's, it's been this kind of low-density parking lot, shopping strip type of development for many years, or it was. And people used to, people that had been displaced used to drive for two hours and just stand there in the parking lot and hang out. It was, I mean, it, it was the culture, black cultural landscape of Seattle. And so the African community interest purchased that property before they had funding to develop it into housing and commercial space. They, they had a little bit of funding for us to design a temporary something. They didn't know what it was going to be, but we had some workshops, we called them design ciphers with folks in the community. And we designed a space at 23rd and Union that was about anchoring and welcoming black men as opposed to incarcerating them. We actually hired formerly incarcerated men from the neighborhood to build, ultimately build the installation. So they actually walked away with a new set of skills and have continued to work in landscape installation ever since the project. But um, we had $100,000 to make something. And the idea was to use it as a way to mobilize the image of Africa, the larger vision for Africa town. I mean, for our listeners who haven't seen uh, this particular project, this is um, you know, features this incredible kind of super graphics stating very, very large font, imagine Africa town. And also in a way, you know, completely transformed this already, you know, vibrant, you know, but non-formal public space of great cultural value into a place that's clearly conceived as about people, about human beings, and less about automobiles, for example. I'm wondering if you've had other experiences, Sarah, in other American cities. Um, obviously, Seattle has had its own unique history. Are there things that you could generalize from your practice now that I know that you're engaged in work across different parts of the country? That's, a, that's tough. You know, really, 
there are so many dynamics at play. And in large part, I mean, the histories, the chapters of history are repeated, uh, but the ways in which they manifest in every space are so different. You know, we see we see the chapters of migration to Eastern and Northern and Midwestern cities. We see the era of the national interstate system. We see urban renewal. We see redlining. We see integration. Integration coinciding in time with both urban renewal and the national interstate system are really across the board a moment in time in a lot of neighborhoods in the urban core. And then the historic disinvestment ever since integration um, has, you know, held out a lot of American cities. And of course, the resurgence in urban density over the last couple of decades has put a lot of pressure, you know, combined with climate changes and political tensions. We're kind of in a weird storm of things now um, where there's a lot of pressure on land and people. You know, another project example is a project we're doing in Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York, um, the Kingsborough Psychiatric Center, uh, which was a large psychiatric complex since the 19th century. And um, it's a huge super block, but it, it never really was a part of the city grid. It's actually, it actually spurred urban development around it. Flatbush is a largely West Indian neighborhood. Uh, but because of those pressures, the state of New York has you know, taken on the project of reimagining what the seven acre site could be. So imagine seven acres in New York City, it's a pretty rare opportunity. And so this initiative called Vital Brooklyn out of the state of New York commissioned a, a competition. And so uh, ourselves, Studio Zodi, partnered with Ajay Associates, put together a design scheme. And the brief called for an open space. And David Ajay really encouraged us to as a team, maximize the amount of uh, landscape space available. So while this is a 20 minute walk from Prospect Park, this neighborhood is the second most underserved um, in terms of green space in the city of New York and all of the public health inequities across the board we see here. So, um, you know, David said, you know, forget the brief, this project is about landscape. And I mean, at the same moment, uh, architecturally, they, the site plan, um, they were able to really skillfully include 900 units of affordable housing. Uh, there's a grocer, the Brooklyn Ballet, a number of really um, interesting tenants lined up um, to create a, a new cultural community uh, in the seven acres with uh, a new landscape space at the heart of it. Within a 20-minute walk of the site, there hasn't been a new landscape space of over an acre in 70 years. So that was a really important contribution for us in the competition phase. And now that we're actually implementing it, we won the competition and we're implementing the project now, um, that's really at the forefront uh, of the work. And so the relationship again, between landscape and you know, the ability to be somewhere uh, is, is really central to, to the work that we're doing. Seven Acres in Brooklyn doesn't come along all that often, and an extraordinary partnership, as you say, with David Ajay. You know, beyond the partnership with Ajay, I mean, can you say something about the relationship between landscape architecture these days? I know your studio is engaged in urban design projects and public art work, among other things, but you're often collaborating with architects. Anything that we could say with respect to the 
the relationship between the fields, it hasn't always been, you know, such a, um, such a pleasure, you know, I mean, I think it comes and goes as my observation over a long durée. Uh, at certain moments, you know, architects have uh, seen the value of, of working, collaborating with landscape architects at the highest level and at other moments, maybe less so. I wonder, you know, particularly given the kinds of, you know, environmental challenges, the, the socio-cultural challenges that we face in the American city, any, any thoughts about, you know, the collaboration between landscape architects and architects in your experience? You know, I think our, our office and our kind of trajectory hasn't been common uh, in the sense that we started by priming projects and the line share of our projects, we're the prime consultant. So the majority of our interactions with architects is they are our subs. The, the AJ relationship probably being the exception to that, we're actually both across our projects that we do with them, we're, we're actually both contracted to a client. Um, but so for the most part, many of the landscape architecture firms that, you know, that I've worked with or in, the majority of their work is as subs to architects. So I, I will say that, that my view of this is really shaped, shaped by that experience. I did used to work for Catherine Gustafson, who says, you know, that landscape architects are shade loving species and that we tend to kind of be wallflowers <laughs> next to architects. Um, I wasn't enculturated that way. And I, when we look for architects to collaborate with, we really seek to be design partners. And, you know, I've never had it in my mind to that landscape architecture comes second in order or in importance, but that there's, you know, the, the, the best work comes out of a really strong dialectic uh, and, you know, we love working with architects. It's, I jokingly call them building architects because I feel like the prefix. <laughs> You've adjectively uh, modified <laughs> them. And, and, and Sir David Ajay is okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that Catherine Gustafson was referring to herself as shade loving. I've never Definitely seen her to not. be shrinking. Absolutely so Sarah, not. I mean, I'm fascinated in, um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, your, your, your practice, as you say, is it's, it's a, bit, a bit of a singularity. It's sort of your own experience, your, your own, in a way, biography, but also your own intellectual and, you know, cultural formation as applied to these questions. Um, I'm interested in the extent to which, you know, as your practice deals with, um, you know, cultural meaning, let's say, the meaning for folks in, in their experience in places over time, let's say. I'm interested in, in the extent to which you're encountering questions of historic preservation conservation. I mean, in, in other spaces in this series, you know, we've been talking with a number of people and it strikes us that from those conversations that almost any topic that we take up, whether it's, you know, climate change or, you know, structural racism in the built environment or history of redlining or gentrification or whatever it might be, questions of conservation preservation, what do we keep, who gets to decide what its value is, they seem right there under the surface. And I, I know that um, you know, your work has been, you know, kind of touching on some of these issues recently. And I wonder if on the one hand, you know, to what extent do you think the practice of landscape architecture or your own education, to put it in those terms, has prepared you for that? Like, how prepared are we for dealing with these questions? And from your experience, like, what are the more interesting questions in that work? So I can I can speak to that, perhaps with a project example. Um, we have been working on Graffiti Pier in Philadelphia, which is a site that um, in, the, in the 1970s, when coal declined in Pennsylvania, kind of coincides in time with the invention of graffiti, which actually was in, graffiti was invented in Philadelphia. They love to tell us New Yorkers that. Um, and so when that happened, sites like ours 
uh, at Pier 18 arose the cultural, you know, the, the notion of the Eastern Seaboard as a place of cultural production. So 2010, when Instagram happened, this site became the most Instagram site in Philadelphia and became a real liability for the real company that owns the site. And, and so we were commissioned by the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation to develop a landscape plan for the site. Of course, graffiti writers were very upset about the idea of landscape architecture coming in. You know, they had an image of string lights and the high line, and there were all these triggers, you know, um, shipping containers. Renderings with kids with balloons, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so what we learned pretty early was that within 25 years, the site will be inundated from just high tides, not even from a storm event. So it would actually take landscape architecture to keep Graffiti Pier, that we had to do something. This project is the Save Graffiti Pier project, um, that leaving it to, their, their main question is, why, why can't you just leave it? I mean, beyond the, the liability issues, it's, it's really under threat, both from the water, but also from the land with urban development encroaching um, on the site and you know, diminishing the presence or the feeling of the site being kind of tucked away at the edge of the city. So in this context, landscape architecture, you know, how do you design something new to keep it the way it was? And it kind of really challenged us on what, what does preservation mean, cultural preservation. And while what we ended up designing was, a, appears to be a light touch, you know, it was a $30 million light touch. And, you know, it takes a pretty heavy hand um, to keep landscapes functioning culturally the way that they are today. So it, for me, it was, it was a really a, a reorientation of what maintenance, what keeping things, what preserving things means. In this case, Sarah, what I hear you saying in, in, in your studio's experience, the pressure of sea level rise, this pressure of increased storm events, the pressure of ongoing economic development, uh, social, cultural changes, it puts the landscape architect, the urbanist, in a position where they have to intervene, even so as to interpret and to conserve. Is that a, is that a fair reading? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was interesting to hear, because graffiti is a very specific ecosystem in and of itself. Um, it's a practice that's in its contemporary form, it's about transgression. And, and so to design a place for transgression is in, inherently in conflict. But when, you know, among the things we heard about how, how if, if you could imagine a place, a graffiti pier in the future, what are the elements that would keep it, you know, what it is today in terms of its presence in graffiti culture? Among the things that we heard, it was keeping it gritty. And when we asked what gritty means, we heard descriptions of water, of mud, of rocks, of plants. And so this ecosystem of graffiti intersects with the historic ecosystem of this tidal marsh. Uh, and so part of the project became actually using the, the lens of graffiti to propose removing the bulkheads and reintroducing a tidal landscape uh, on the Delaware River, which ecologically is quite significant. There's nothing like it um, in this part of Philadelphia. And so um, the client was actually on board. And so to do so, to propose that, um, not only for its ecological performance, but also for its cultural performance in terms of keeping it gritty for the culture of, of graffiti was a really compelling and generative intersection for us. 
I'm struck both by that account, but also the contrast between that approach and so much of landscape architecture practice in the past decades. I mean, landscape architecture, you know, our colleague and friend Richard Weller at Penn has said, you know, landscape architecture has done a boon trade in cleaning up after industry. And I'm struck by there's a rendering of this here, uh, this graffiti pier, which is clearly from your practice, uh, it's a it seems to me, correct me if, you, if, if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm reading it as a response to the High Line and other comparable projects, right? This is a, it's from the top of, of this pier. It's got the kind of horizontal view across the Delaware River. Uh, and it's got this wildflower garden kind of bubbling up just, but also signs of neglect and conscious kind of signs of grit, as you say. And it couldn't be further from the recent experience in projects at High Line and others in which the desire to reinterpret our industrial past often leads us to clean it to such an extent to remove so much of the vibrancy that people found there culturally. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times we were told do not do the high line on the top of the structure. Uh, and so, yes, it, we were really forced to uh, position ourselves as uh, somewhat contrary to the high line. And so the, yeah, the planting that you see is like, sedums and grasses and there's gravel paths and really I mean we keep the 19 original 1923 railings we just bring it up to code and you know again to do all of this still takes quite a bit of structural work uh, to make this sound and and safe so it's it's not any less of a heavy hand than a high line um, but what do we do with that hand is really up to us and so this project really forced us to question those sort of reflexes, the design reflexes, the decisions we make about cleanliness or, you know, the material choices, detailing, how are we making these decisions? They say things to people, you know, there's a person on my team who really challenges, begs me to not talk about heavy hand versus light hand, because it's really, um, it's not about that. It's not a light touch. It's not a light hand. And it's not a use, and maybe not even a useful framing because, um, this is just as much landscape architecture. This is just as designed as anything else. So as, as you think about your practice, Sarah, going forward, I know that you're busy. I'm glad that you're energized by this. You clearly have a lot of support, a lot of collaborators, a lot of people uh, you know, supporting your work, uh, both in-house and out of house. What do you see the challenges for your work going forward? Like, wh what do you see as the, the, you know, the, the bigger challenges that we might address as a, as a profession or as a discipline? What, what are the kinds of things that you see that are challenges for you to confront in the, the coming years of your practice? This is something that, you know, through the, working with you on the big plans exhibit has been on my mind uh, ever since, which is, you know, the scale of our thinking, the scale of our contribution, the nature of which, you know, landscape architects are engaged with the bigger issues of society. And I think the continued work uh, on reflecting on Olmsted's legacy um, and bringing all of that to the frame of the, each project that we work on offers on society and place and, and cities, you know, I think there can be bigger imaginations and from clients, from cities, from policymakers, from philanthropists um, that, you know, landscape architects can and should have the skill set not only to design and build landscapes, but before that, understanding them and imagining what's possible uh, that our contributions uh, in terms of a, a larger visioning um, is really important, but it's up to us as landscape architects to demonstrate that 
to teach that, to learn that, to develop that um, as a skill set that's, you know, this is not just a, a technical set of skills. I think what happens when we think of it as just a technical set of skills is we end up wielding that in ways that we've seen historically, you know, over the last 150 years. And what can be done when we, you know, challenge ourselves and elevate our ability to toggle across scales and then design and build landscapes in that context. I think that's to me a really important part of the work that I wanna do and really convincing others that landscape architects can do that, should be doing that, um, that our work is relevant beyond the lines of the limit of work. It's a challenge I think, you know, when issues of maintenance and security and so forth become the, the forefront of people's thinking about what landscape architecture is, it diminishes what our potential contribution to, to cities and to people can be. So I think messaging about our profession and bringing people along for the ride and, and working with people in a really expanded way are among the things that I, I hope to be able to navigate, you know, over the course of the next chapters of the work. Sarah Zodi, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.